0: Welcome to the Help One Child podcast. This is the show that equips adoptive and foster parents with information from experts in the fields of trauma and attachment. Our hope is that with every episode, you will find helpful insights and practical parenting tips. My name is Kristen Wynn Reyes, and I'm your host today as we cover the topic of better communication with the ones you love. Our guest is Anne Arnold, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. Anne has a private practice with Renew, a therapy collective. She helps with adoption issues for parents and adult adoptees with a particular focus on helping overworked parents, particularly women, find joy in their lives again. She is a family's first parent trainer and has her own foster daughter who is now 23 years old. And we are so glad to have you today. Thank you for being with us.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to speaking with you. It's been great.
0: Great, thanks. So let's talk about communication. Most parents and couples feel like communication takes a large amount of time and energy for their families. Can you give us your perspective on communication with loved ones? Well, you know,
1: it's... This, it's a huge topic, right? I mean, and it does take. It's pretty much all we do all day long. I mean, yeah, it takes up a lot of time because it's everything that we we're communicating on all kinds of levels, or right? we're communicating on levels of, you know, are you going to pick up the kids today? To, you know, what's what's your dreams for the future? To, you know, have how are your how are your feelings about the fact that you know you've got an F on your report card? all kinds of different things that were all different levels of emotions. right? So, um, and, and the better that we can do that, the better that we can do that, especially with the ones we love, because we, you know, the better our families are going to be and happier. They're going to be, people are going to feel like they're heard, which is huge. And, um, you know, you, I, you know, to think that like, when you're outside in the world, you have this one way of communicating with people, which is, Um, you know, a little more polished, a little more, it's like a, you know, an external persona, right? A a person that you show to the world, the people that you really show yourself to are the people that are in your family, at least hopefully. And if not, then that's, you know, that's an issue too in and of itself. Right. But so that Mm -hmm. kind of real, um, meaningful, careful, and loving communication is really important for families to be healthy.
0: Okay, great. Um, why might communication be a topic of particular interest to our adoptive and foster parents, even our kinship parents?
1: Well, because you're folks who have who, who have children in their home, whether they're little kids or big kids, or you know, teens or or toddlers. Um, you've got, you've got kids in your homes who have been through a lot and when people have trauma in their histories, the communication is a struggle there. Um, there's an extra, there's an an extra need for the parent to work that much harder to try to understand what those behaviors are about to try to understand what the child is trying to communicate through their actions through even their words, like what exactly are you talking about? And meaning is a struggle for the parent themselves to communicate to the child in a way that gets through to them, right? I mean, it's one thing to say something to somebody, but if they don't aren't able to take it in, which a lot of people with trauma can't take stuff in, they hear it in a different kind of way. Right. Um, And so, or even actions are taken in a different kind of, Wait, right the way that you sit the way that you face a person how strong your voice is how soft your voice is all these little things really impact our kids because they're they're so you know a lot of them are hyper vigilant they're so waiting and looking for somebody to hurt them or for something to go wrong or for themselves they don't even know themselves if they're safe so they're always seeking safety and seeking trust and it, it, it makes communication just that much harder you know it's like parenting on steroids as you, you know as i like, know you are all aware i mean it's like you're, you're parenting like i always would talk about parents like here's your parenting skills are like you know go out to a, a, a circle that's a little, you know a foot away from you and then you get foster or adopt a parent parenting and that takes you another three feet away from you like these is your ability has got to really expand to be able to take in all those, um, to take in all those needs and, and the and the
0: specifics that kids of all, of all ages need. Right. Yeah, I think that's very validating to hear you say. Um, it is hard. It's like parenting on steroids, and we have to expand our skill set. I think that's really helpful, and I'm glad. Parents are tuning in. I know this is helpful for me, (laughs) learning new (laughs) skills as well with my own kiddos. And you've... Yeah, um, it's like... mm -hmm, Go ahead.
1: Sorry. You get to, like, the edge of what you think you can tolerate, right? Like, and then the kid is just wanted a little bit further on beyond that. And you're like, oh, I have to really, really, really stretch myself to be able to not lose it and hang in there with them and, you know... (laughs) all of that stuff. So yeah, it is, it's that much harder.
0: Right. Right. And I know you might speak to this later, but how, how do you suggest we hang in there and not lose it? <laughs> I know it takes a lot of patience and practice. It,
1: well, it takes a lot of patience. I, I, I mean, it takes even more patience than with, with your standard biological child or child who doesn't have that kind of trauma. Right. So, It it really takes, uh, sometimes it takes stepping back, you know, as we're going to talk about a little bit later, stepping back and waiting for an hour to go by before you get back in there. Because if your levels of stress have gotten up that high, you're really not going to be able to deal with that kids, whatever that kid is presenting. Sometimes it takes like um, really quick creativity. I always say that I think parenting is one of the most creative, you know, people say, I'm not creative. Oh, no, but you're parenting a kid. You are creative because you're okay. always thinking of like, how can I get around whatever this is that's going on and make things a little better or change it up. Right. So like changing the scene, as people talk about, you know, move to a different space, say things to this kid in a different way so that they can actually hear it, you know, and, uh, or surprise them. Right. Sometimes it's like, we're not, you know, so that it's so all these little things that, that parents come up with. So when I say, yeah, to expand is, is to push yourself out to that creative space. Sometimes it takes, like, thinking about an interaction that's happened during the day and then later in the evening reviewing it yourself or talking about it with your partner to say, this went on, I don't know that I handled it the best, and I don't even know what to do with this kid about this. So the two of you coming up with creative, or yourself and a friend coming up with creative suggestions or thoughts about uh, this piece, this particular behavioral piece and communication piece, always breaks down. I do it the same way every time, and the same way never works. So there's got to be a different way. There's always if the same way isn't working, then it's not going to work. It's right. going to keep not working, right? <laughs> so you have to say, okay. So that's kind of that what I mean by you know expanding and moving out and like you know, uh, kids because the the behaviors are so much bigger and stronger, so that. Um, you know, a biological kid doesn't have any issues. You could do the same thing over again, and it doesn't really have to change or upset them. Or, you know, you can get away with that. But, boy, you got to really be creative and plus calming yourself,
0: right? So it's like all this self-care as well as creative outward care. So right, right. And I love that you talked about um... – Kind of having a sounding board, talking to your partner, your spouse, oh, yeah. um, in a support group with a friend. Support groups, yeah, I all think that's that. really
1: therapist, whoever, yeah, you've got to, yeah.
0: Really key. Yeah, um, absolutely. Great. Why is it so crucial we become strong listeners and take in the points of view of our children and our co-parents? And maybe in answering this, you want to talk about the solar method.
1: Well, yeah, you know... Um, I talked to, I, I, one of the things I do is I teach ther. I teach what I like to call baby therapists, how to be therapists. <laughs> so I work in the, in, in a master's program and I teach them how to, you know, think like a therapist, talk like a therapist, listen like a therapist, right? Cause that's a different way. So we, we, we talk always about this uh, acronym SOLAR, which is a, a way of communicating with people and listening particularly. So this is really more about listening than it is about talking. But um, so solar is this acronym that stands for facing facing your person squarely. So that's the S squarely. Um, Adopting an open posture, just physically being more open in your body, like, you know, hands not over your chest, you know, sitting with your hands in an open way so that you're looking, you're going to take in whatever information is they're talking about. And that O is, that's the O, the L is remembering that it's possible at times to lean forward into a person, to move towards them, which means I'm really interested in what you have to say. This is really important. This is uh, a moment that we really want to capture. The E is for uh, maintaining good eye contact. And then the R is for being, trying to be relaxed, right? Because sometimes, especially if it's a hard conversation there's a feeling of, you know, like, ah. and for new therapists, they're always nervous about everything. So it's that kind of idea of, of trying to relax in the moment. This, I think, you know, is great for listening skills, but for foster and adopted kids, not always what's going to work, right? So if you talk about facing somebody squarely, that to listen to them, like, like main looking like we're having good eye contact, that doesn't work for a lot, a lot of foster adopted kids because of the trauma, right? Looking at somebody square on is very intrusive and it feels, feels like you're coming in at them, right? When you're not, I mean, you might be sitting way back, you might be sitting across the room even, but having that feeling of being hit square in the face. And a lot of times parents make the mistake of, especially with kids with who are kind of out there or who are having an emotional response or who are ADHD or whatever, I'm just kind of almost grabbing their head and saying, okay, look me in the eye when we're talking so I know you're listening. It's like the eyes don't really do the listening. It's the ears that do the listening. So if you really want them to look at you in the eye, it's likely you're going to shut them off in terms of their ears because they can't look at the eye and hold that at the same time as listening. It's just too much emotionally. It gets them very riled up, right? So to be able to look a child in the eye is okay sometimes, but sometimes you don't need to sit, look at them squarely sitting sideways, sitting in a car side by side or on a couch side by side. I don't know if you've ever noticed how much your kids will talk in a car side by side with you, or even like they're in the back right there because right. Of their kids right there in the back. And they'll just be talking away about this and that. and <laughs> You know, just, I mean, talk about creative. This was one of the things I used to do with my son. He used to love the, um, uh, the count on, on um,
0: uh oh Sesame Street.
1: Was it the count? I'm trying to remember. I think it was the count on Sesame yeah. Street. And so I would do this count voice like, Dom, how are you doing today? You know, we <laughs> talk like that. Uh-huh. And he he knows me. I'm sitting right there, you know, what's not, but it was like a puppet kind of idea, but he was behind me. Uh-huh. And he would talk and talk to the count like he was <laughs> like, tell him all his problems. And I was like, why doesn't he talk to me that way? I'm his mom, but no, he would just talk to the count. Dracula or whatever that guy's name is. So it was really, uh-huh. it was cute and funny, but it, it worked almost every time. At Christmas, I would talk like Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer and he would talk to Rudolph too. But that was, and of course that only lasted for a period of time until he became like, you know, eight or nine. And then he was like, okay, that's too much little kid talk. But that idea, right, of being creative and at the same time, not sitting squarely looking at somebody is, is uh, important you know, and then adopting an open posture. Yeah, you can do this, but do not expect the kids to adopt an open posture. They may be sitting all crunched up and with their feet up in the air and laying on their back on the couch and looking at the ceiling while you're talking. Fine. Their ears are open as long as, and you can check in, right? Are you you catching all this that I'm talking to you about? Yeah, I'm hearing you. Okay. Right. So what are we going to do tomorrow? You know, that kind of thing where they're repeating back to you what. but, but yeah. not demanding that they sit straight up and they look right at you. That's mm-hmm. not going to work. Um, remember that leaning in towards other people, like we talked about where it's very significant, like you might do that with your friend across the coffee table after COVID right. and <laughs> but... leaning closer than six feet and be uh-huh. able to say, I care about you and hold a hand, right? And all that stuff. Leaning in is again, just like that intrusive piece, right? So it may be that you have to lean back and still convey the how much you care, how much you really love them, how much you really want to hear what they have to say. Um, and then we talked about eye contact already, um, cause that's the E for solar and then being relatively relaxed is, yeah, it's a good idea. Try to be relatively relaxed <laughs> because it, again, it's a hard process and, the more relaxed you can be, the more creative it will, you know, the creative juices will flow more if you're relaxed. When you get tensed up and you can't, then it's like, I can't even think of anything. I just want to get this kid to go away right now. You know? Yeah. So you need to relax so that you can be a better parent
0: too. So, right. When I, yeah. when I feel like I'm not relaxed, I'm usually triggered or more likely to enter the power struggle. <laughs> oh, right? yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yes. Exactly. I love the example you used um, with your son and that idea that being playful and thinking outside the box, being creative is so important and, and age appropriately, right? It sounds like you knew that right. that worked for him when he was younger. When he was eight, he needed a different approach, right?
1: Right, absolutely. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, he, he was one of those who, you know, he liked to stay in that place. Like, I think he believed in Santa way then he was longer than he was supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> Just because he liked to enjoy, enjoyed it imaginative space
0: (laughs) yes yes wonderful wonderful um and i love how you're talking about um all these all this body language so how can we practice and get better at picking up verbal and nonverbal cues especially with our children but in in our whole family
1: we you know one of the exercises i do with in class is i have people uh listen and then listen to a person tell a story without using any verbal response at all. Like, no, yeah, hmm, oh, no. And then have them tell their listen to that story and, and see if you can express without verbal response. Um, and then doing that exercise again and the second time, listening or looking like you're listening, but thinking about something else, right? So we all know when somebody we're talking to somebody and they're looking at us, and we're trying to share something important. Hopefully it's not your partner because well, that's never a good thing. <laughs> but you're trying to share something important and you can tell they're gone. They've checked out They're They're looking right at you, but they're thinking about work or whatever, you know, and you're thinking, why am I even still talking? Right. So we as humans are very, very alert and aware as to what the verbal and physical cues are that are going on around us. We can read like, I don't know, 600 and something facial expressions. I mean, wow. that's insane.
0: Mm-hmm. Now
1: kids can't, and kids, especially with any kind of autism, cannot. Um, so that's why sometimes you may give a, what you think is a pretty clear message with your face, and they're like, da 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 da, da like didn't get it, didn't get that you're about to blow a gasket. No, because they didn't see that on your face. They just like no, you know, think it's okay. Um, so, so practicing is really one of the ways to practice is to really think about your own self. Like, what are you doing with your body in any given moment? How are you standing? How are you when you're talking to your kids? Are you even looking at them, or are you busy making tacos? You know, which of course we all have to do. Well, make tacos but, and other food. So we all have to. We all. But isn't it true that, when that you know, I, I distinctly have memories of, like, stirring the taco meat in the saucepan when that's when the kid will come up and ask where babies come from. You know, it's like, seriously? I'm making tacos. I love <laughs> I mean, it. I hear we talking about this, right? It's like, oh, uh, okay. But, you know, is that really so unusual? Because... You're, they know you're not 100% turned in. They have this question and they, they know you're not right there with them and they kind of want to hit you from the side which they are <laughs> literally doing with a really hard question uh-huh. like to answer.
0: The parent, uh-huh.
1: the awful parent questions that we dread to hear. <laughs> so, but yeah, I don't even know if I'm asking you or answering a any question
0: anymore, Kristen. Yeah, no, but it's one good.
1: Of the, one of the ways is to really look at your own stuff. Pay attention to your own body and then you can also, especially with the kids, be really noticing any kind of little body posture stuff. If you have a kid that tends to tantrum or blow out any age, doesn't matter, what's going on with them? What Do you notice anything that's happening just before that happened? Like in the hour prior, were there any things that that kid did that are repetitive that could be indicate indicate that that's about to happen right because oftentimes there is and we don't notice it because we're not really you know we aren't expecting a blowout so we aren't really looking at them so we're not really noticing that they're you know that they've got something happening on their face or with their hands or their body or they're jumping or whatever to be going backwards in time after a blowout to say what was there any kind of a clue? Because there may have been. And if you go back and you notice it, f- look for it and you find that you happen to land on it, then you're a little more tuned in for the next time where you can jump on it in advance, right? And say, hey, it looks like you need to breathe with me. <laughs> or You need, let's take a breath or let's go for a walk around the block, something where you can catch the, you know, pre blowout kind of thing.
0: Right. So,
1: it's I- very difficult. It is very difficult.
0: I know that the tired indicator can be a big one, um, for lots of parents with their children. And, um, for example, I know someone who has a child that, um, if that child gets home from school, um, it's just generally the child's very tired, has probably held it together all day at school to cooperate. Absolutely. And then has about four more hours till bedtime, but everything's going to be harder. Um, and this, uh, you know, their child won't nap. So, um, yeah, it's, it's tricky when um, you have the cues, but you don't have the solution of sleep <laughs> for four hours. <laughs> so right. I have parents that are trying to navigate that. Do you have any suggestions when you see that cue of tiredness, how to better communicate with your child who has less tolerance, less patience, less coping skills?
1: Well, you're not going to be able to communicate anything that's really significant. Like Mm -hmm. you're not going to be able to talk about like an issue that you want to work through with them Mm
0: because they
1: are emotional. The physiology has taken over. Right. So we have the intellectual, the physical and the emotional. Right. So you want them in the intellectual realm to have this conversation, but they're in a physical realm. They're tired. It may be that they're hungry. Right, and we all know that. So that hangry thing has become very popular. But yeah, finding a way to get them to eat. I I can literally have I have client kid clients that have come in my office at like three thirty right after school, four o'clock maybe, haven't eaten anything, and they are just a mess. I'm like, I just keep snacks in my office now. I just I've given up. So I'm like, hey, let's have something to eat, right. so that you can actually do some therapy with me. You know that. So that idea, um, it, it may be that especially if it's been, you know, you know, it's been a late night the night before, or there's, they didn't sleep well or whatever. You're pretty well predictive that they are not going to do much. You may have to abandon everything. You may have to abandon homework that night and every, you know, not require a ton of um, behavioral things from them, like not require they do their chore that night. Right. I mean, Sure, every other night. Yeah, or most every other night. But to, to relax some of the stressors because otherwise you are going to get that blow up. Because they really, on a physiology standpoint and an emotional standpoint, they are not able to, they're not pulling it together. <laughs> they're, you know, so so sometimes it requires, or if they've had something particularly difficult, like if they've just had a, a, a visit with their biological parent that kind of thing to say that's more stressful than it looks like for most kids. Most kids look like they're doing okay, but it's most of the time they're not. And so to be just tuned into the fact that you're going to possibly have a bad evening or a bad afternoon, you know, when they get home, you, and most people would know that for the next day or two,
0: that there's going to be, you know, upheaval. So. Right. So and I struggling. I like how you're suggesting then the parent needs to attune and be flexible and adapt expectations. Especially... Yeah, because
1: sometimes parents think that if we hold the structure, that will help them. Yeah, most of the time. But if they're gone, like if they are really to a stressed out max point, holding the structure is just going to make it worse. <laughs> so tuning into it's almost like if you think about some uh, your child as being sick, physically sick. You wouldn't say, okay, you need to take out the garbage. No, you would say you need to go to bed early <laughs> or you need to lie down. I'll get you something to snack on or whatever, right? You, you wouldn't require that of them. And they are really physically injured in that way.
0: Yeah. You know, in a way, so. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Um, what communication challenges that you haven't already shared can particularly arise for foster adoptive and kinship families? And can you speak to how to deal with these challenges, how to approach children of different ages as well?
1: Well, you know, as kids age, it's sort of like you have more access to their mental problem-solving space, right? So when kids are little, you know, zero to even five, the problem-solving abilities are, you know, you don't have that. It's much more of a physical, emotional kind of, I mean, I've been using this so I might as well go with it still, that physical, emotional space is still really where they're living. That's where they're at, right? They're just learning numbers and stuff. That's the only cognitive stuff they got going on. But so that the older they get, the more you can start to access that Whereas, so that when you're in a teen space, there's an ability to almost talk like an adult, not quite. Probably the bigger mistake for a teen parent is, parent of a teen is that, teen parent, no, not that, parent of a teen <laughs> is, right. is that they're able, they, they talk to their child as if they are an adult, Yes. And the teenager is kind of asking for that, like, treat me like an adult, right? Listen to me, understand me like I'm an adult. Well, you're not really an adult yet. And you really don't even have an adult brain. Adult brain doesn't really form until 25. So right. you still have a kid brain in a big adult-sized body. And so uh, talking to that person in and problem-solving and working through issues with the thought that, Yes, the respect that you want to give to an adult, but also the understanding that you're still the only adult in the room and you're the one who has to eventually be helping this young person hold the limits, right? Hold your, hold the boundaries up for the limits. And they're just going to bounce around like ping pong balls because inside that boundary, all kids do. particularly teens because that's they're just dying to get out right they're just dying to break free from this place that they're stuck in they feel like they're stuck (laughs) but you go you know so that the younger kids there's more of um it can be more enjoyable quote unquote as a parent because you've got more of this response back of mommy mommy daddy daddy like you know cute fun connectedness that you don't always get with the junior high, high school kids. So that's why junior high and high school becomes hard and why people dread it. Not all kids, you know, is not generalized, but there are, um, uh, there are certainly kids who are not like that, but there's overarching. Parents are trying to get closer to their kids, especially adoptive, foster adoptive kids. You want them to be close to you. And, uh, that, can happen in the elementary up to elementary to junior high and then it starts to change. So communication needs to be taking that kind of thing into account. Like the younger child, you're going to be looking at more of the kind of physical response. You know, they don't, you're not going to try to be solving tons of problems with them. You, you know, like we teach sharing to very little kids. Do they get it? No, they don't get it at all. They'll, kind of do it because you told them to do it but they don't understand what it even means really to share fully share they just are like okay i'll let them use my truck if you make me but you know they don't really have that understanding that's kind of what i'm talking about so that fully later on there's an understanding of sharing or whatever the issue is right so that the cognitive starts to kick in
0: and and about what age developmentally would that cognitive understanding of sharing kick in and and knowing maybe you could speak to how our foster or adoptive kids might be a little bit um behind their chronological age in some oh yeah aspects yeah,
1: yeah. i know when i was in foster care we used to always like we'd make these like cut piece cut out paper dolls like like gingerbread cutouts right big ones And have the different realms, like the head was the thought thinking, the academic realm, you know, where is this kid? This kid's a five-year-old kid. Academically, he's really six. He's pretty smart. In school, he doesn't do very well, though. So so thinking-wise, he's, you know, like older. Academically, in school, he's younger, because he hasn't had as much schooling as other kids have had, or as supported of school, schooling, right? And so then emotionally, he's like two years old and physically he's a foot taller than the other kids. So now we've got this really big collage of a child and yeah, who don't, they, they aren't able to make, um, you know, so that idea of sharing or the, any kind of, of, um, kind of moral things you're trying to teach a child like that. Um, it's very, uh, it's, it's, it's very difficult. I know I was just talking to my foster daughter the other day about when she first came to us, she, she was, uh, racist towards African-Americans or people of brown skin. She didn't like dolls that had brown skin. And she told me, mom, we don't like dolls with brown skin. I'd be like, okay. I don't know where that came from because it didn't come from our family. So some of it came, but you came with that. Right. So it's sort of like having to just let that sit there and be okay and and talk it through, but not try to fix it, solve the problem. You know, you just have to kind of sit with those, those learnings of behavioral learnings of sharing and, um, taking care of other people, being able to extend yourself when kids have trauma, they're not really able to do that. They, they, they come with a deficit in those departments because they've been so busy staying alive they're so ongoing have been survival, survival, survival. Right. And they their their cortisol in their head, all their physiology is just shot. So they're they're really just working so hard just to take care of who they are in the moment. Right. So so to say, hey, there's other humans in the world, how about you take help take care of other humans and love other humans like, okay. I have to be safe first. I have to have trust first. I have to have my stuff first. I have to be able to, right? So there's always that me, 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 me kind of quality. Yeah, because that's how you stay alive when you're yeah, a neglected kid or whatever.
0: Exactly. And that, that can come across as selfish or greedy as a very negative and be misunderstood, yes. right?
1: Yes. So there's an element of having to hold as the foster parent adoptive parent having to hold both those ideas in your head at the same time this is a person who needs to eventually be able to share and care and go with other you know other about other people right now they really can't do that they're really struggling and they sound they yes you're absolutely right they sound selfish and and needy and and not able to So as a parent, you have to kind of find this softened spot in the middle to say, I'm going to hold the boundary on you and say right now it's Janie's turn. And I know that's really hard for you, but it's going to be your turn. You know, like that really, not the stop being selfish, treat Janie well, better, better, you know, not that kind of parenting, but a real softened parenting that says you're going to be all right. You'll get another turn. All those kinds of things. Right. That we try to do so and not labeling it as selfish and not labeling it as bad behavior necessarily right just because the kid likely very likely may grow up and still have those feelings and not ever be able to truly resolve them but at least you want them to be able to have some softening of that me 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 me, me," right to like okay yeah put up with other people and having things yeah
0: Yes, and then um, for families that have more than one child who's come from a hard place or experienced trauma, that gets complicated too, I'm sure, to um, hold it for different children and how they interact with each other, which can be um, very unkind or harmful, and yet they're acting out of their own woundedness. Yeah,
1: yeah, it is. It's very difficult.
0: Any suggestions for um, helping siblings who might come from that way of communicating? It's mine. Nothing for the you. Thing about si-
1: the thing about siblings is it's it's very complex because they had a si- they've had a sibling connection since birth, so they have they come already with a whole litany of ways that they do the dance of, with each other, right? They have this sibling dance, right? They've been doing it since birth. And now here you come to say, don't dance like that. <laughs> this part of your dance isn't very helpful. And they're like, Uh you know, so you're kind of breaking up the dance and it's very challenging because you have to first figure out what the dance is and why, why did that start like that? maybe you have one sibling who's parentified and they needed to be parentified because the other kids were going to die if they didn't have a sibling that took care of them. And now you're going to take out that parent, you know, parentified child's job because you're the parent. Okay. That's going to really ruffle some feathers for that kid. And then you have the, you know, the other kids who have responded to that kid as being the parentified kid and are used to that and are used to, fighting up against that person that child's boundaries, you know, so it's super layered and complicated. Um, Yeah, so just trying to first at least get an understanding of how they co connect and why they would be doing it that way. And it served a purpose for them. Right. So that you know, all behavior has meaning. So looking at the behavior, saying what was, what was the purpose of this search for these kids? It might've just been dog eat dog and they really don't know that now they're safe and they don't have to do dog eat dog anymore. They don't have to all fight for the one piece of food because there's 10 pieces of food now. Right. And so trying to get to that place of really, expressing how much safety and trust they can have at this point and that takes a long time that takes a long time to help a child get to that to all the kids right that you have in your house that to 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 get them to a place of to say oh it really is there really still is food in the refrigerator it's been a year and a half i've been here and there's still food in the refrigerator a year and a half later yeah and there's going to be in three years and be there in 10 years Right. But they just have to see it over and over and over. I mean, you know, they have to interpret our behavior, our communication through our behavior. They have to see that that's how you look when you're angry and you look that same way every time. And you don't look different. You don't one day just go crazy and pull knives out of the drawer. No, you always look this way. And this is how you look when you're sad. And this is how you look as a parent when, when you're really happy and pleased with them. And they're always, you know, you catch kids looking at you like, what's her expect? What's going to happen? What's she feeling? What's she thinking? Was she gonna, she gonna get mad? You know, they're, they're trying to figure that out. And so you're consistent over and over and over and over and over again, you get food, you get food, you get food. I, this I'm angry about this now and now and now and I'm happy about this now and now and you do it over and over and over and over. And that's how they finally come to some safety and security. But boy, it just takes a ton of time and repetitive
0: Right, right. And you'll get still sometimes where the kids will be like, Are you mad?
1: Are you not like, Do I look mad? Like, <laughs> just like, Holy cow, how much more times do I have to show you? I'm not going to get on a belt or something. Come on. Right. You know, it's just like, What's going to happen? What's going to happen? What's going to You know, they are just wired, just wired, you know, electric.
0: Right, so. right. And so, Earlier, you talked about siblings and that they're born into that relationship. And we also have siblings in some of our families that are um, not born into the family or biological siblings, but are being raised as siblings or join a family and become siblings. So it sounds like that would look a little different because the starting point would be different or they wouldn't have a common background in a different family.
1: Right. So if you can imagine, we're talking about communication, like they're, they're, they're lang- they're, they're trying they're, you know, this kid just came in in foster care just landed in Germany and he speaks English. So he's like, your house is Germany <laughs> and his house is English. Like he, he's got to learn English, Germany, German, and you got to learn his English, right? I mean, it's that kind of thing. It's like the the communication that he has perhaps really is, he's, it's very confusing. That's why the foster kids initially take just for a long time, that long time to figure out what is this family about? Who is okay here? Who is what's going on? Because they're, it's, you know, it's like if you put a kid down in a classroom and everybody's speaking a different language and they're just sitting there looking like, okay, I'm picking up verbal cues, but I'm also picking up visual cues and behavioral cues. Like what exactly is happening? That person over there looks happy. This person over there looks kind of mean, right? They may not be mean. They may just have a face that looks kind of mean, like we talk about sometimes. But they can't interpret it, right? So uh, it's kids always trying to interpret um, what's what's going on around them. So yeah. So in terms of sibling to sibling, then it's you know the kids and. And then you have all the feelings of the siblings on the side who've been there or the biological siblings or whatever to welcoming in this kid. Who's, who is just so excited to have them come and then you have them come and they are really not easy and they're not the glovey dubby sibling. You thought they. it's not like television. It's not like the movie, Annie, where the sun will come out tomorrow. It's not like any of that stuff. It's really, really hard for them too right? It's hard for the parents, but it's also hard for the kids who have been, you know, your own biological kids. It's like, uh, I thought it was going to have something different.
0: Yeah. So there's, yeah,
1: there's just layers and layers of communication
0: going on. Yes. Thank you. Um, What communication challenges can arise if your child also struggles with added challenges such as, you know, not just trauma, but maybe being ADHD or dealing with depression, anxiety, um, attachment disorders or social isolation.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, one of the things when I'm working with kids, cause I have seen kids over the years and a lot, especially when I was working in foster care is that, um, as parents, you're working with both the issues, the, the, the diagnosis and the symptoms that come from that diagnosis, like, so you know, distractibility for the ADHD or, you know, reactiveness or whatever that is. And then you're also working with that self-esteem piece that's goes, that's undercurrent, right? And um, it, it a lot of times, you know, the longer I do this work, that a lot of times it seems to me that the The self-esteem piece is almost the, the, the most important to be put in place because if you can put, if a kid can feel like they're valued, they're loved, they're important, they're, and they just have different behavior and different way of engaging in the world, they may be depressed or they may be anxious or whatever, but they're still valued and loved and cared for and that the, the, the world is hard sometimes, but I know that in this place I'm safe and that that kid will grow up to be a person who says, yeah, I'm an adult and I have ADHD and this is how I deal with it. I Just like I'm an adult and I have diabetes and this is how I deal with it. It's just a series of symptoms I have to take care of and tend to because otherwise I don't do so well. And to be able to come to some acceptance and understanding of that, right? you know, and at the same time, because of their diagnosis and, and their issue, the issues that they have as parents, it's on us to make sure that we provide and do as much as we can for them to to not only feel that self-acceptance or that self, you know, self-esteem piece, but also provide as much as we can to um, attend to those particular um symptoms, right? Because I mean, depression symptoms can be very dangerous. I mean, that can lead to suicide for teens. I mean, so making sure that we're really keeping our eyes open and educating ourselves. I mean, that's not really the topic of this conversation, but educating ourselves about these issues so that we are not missing the cues, you know, that may be there, um, you know, and that we are not, uh, that we're paying attention to the issues of addiction or with issues, those kinds of things as kids get older. But, and also then as they're in younger grades in school that we're able to talk to them about or, or work with teachers, you know, work with, um, you know, as you all are to try to help them with their um, particular symptoms and whatever
0: those may be. Yeah. Great. Thank you. And how can we as parents notice and try to avoid our desire to fix our children?
1: <laughs> well, you can try, but it's not going to work, first of all. <laughs> <laughs> it's so challenging because we can't stand to see them struggle, right? So we want to, when, you know, when I say fix, I think it's like we want to tell them how to do it so they won't suffer. Right. So learn from my mistakes or, um, you know, it's like you hate to see them fail or get hurt because they're making a choice that you're looking at it going, oh, man, that's not going to end up well. Um, and, And a lot of times the fixing piece or the lecturing that we do, it just seems like it's just faster. If I just tell you, do it this way, don't do it that way, then. I know it's the right way and you will avoid whatever problem you're going to have. And I don't have time to sit here and discuss with you every little thing about what's going on. Like why wearing that outfit to school is going to make you ridicule, get you ridiculed, right? Um, Why it's important to wear, I don't know why it's important to me as a parent for you to wear colored socks that match.
0: (laughs) that
1: kind of thing right like we fix it because we think other kids are going to make fun of them or they're not going to do as well or whatever and um or they come to us with a problem about you know some other person this is very elementary junior high even teen like you know how Janie is mistreating them they're not she's not really treating me so well and I tried to talk to her about that and then she didn't say it You know, and we want to just get in there and say, Well did you try this? And did you say that? And did you work on this with them? And like they they really need some of that stuff to learn by injury. (laughs) I mean, so that's also how we learned it, right? We learned it by trying I you know, I I can distinctly remember in eighth grade being a horrible gossiper. I just loved telling other people's news Mm -hmm. to
0: this is, like,
1: sound good for a therapist now, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I love telling other people's news to, you know, to try to stir up drama. That was mm-hmm. my, Oh man, I was all over that. Did that go very well for me? Not so much late, you know, as it went on, I was like losing one friend after another who decided I wasn't trustworthy. Right. And I just kind of had to learn that through doing that. And so there are things that we've learned that way you know, the other thing about kids making mistakes is that it can make us look bad, like so that people are going to judge us, you know, the classic is the kid tantruming in the grocery store. And now everybody's looking at us like what's wrong with you, you can't take care of that kid, right? So um, that, yeah, we, we sometimes are going to have to deal with the judgment of other people and just put up with that, right? I uh, having, being very careful to have in, in grocery stores to have my adopted daughter, not go to strangers because she was very prone to that to go just right up to strangers and hug them. Right. That's common thing. And to be having her ask me if she could hug somebody or hold my hand the whole time or whatever tool I had implemented. And the stranger's saying, oh, but I'm not a bad person. I can hug a little kid. I'm like, oh, geez, lady, you don't get it. What I'm dealing with here, you have no clue. <laughs> this kid doesn't need to be hugging strangers. It's really bad for her. And, um, you know, having to just face down an old lady in a grocery store when I'm just trying to buy bananas. You know, just like, uh, no, sorry, she can't hug you. Like, I don't care if that upsets you or not. Right. <laughs> like, you know, it's just... Um, Yeah, we just sometimes have to take that, that judgment on us. And if they make a mistake that, you know, I think I shared that, that I remember uh, and the project was to make the, I think it was third grade to make the mission, you know, build a mission kind of structure as part of the mission, California missions thing. And everybody else went to Michael's and bought the kit and built these beautiful missions with little bells and plants and all kinds of things on them. They just look just fantastic. And my friends who didn't believe in that, who believe that your kids should just do it and struggle and if they don't do a good job, it just doesn't come out. They had her build her mission and it just, it looked like a kid made a mission and it was great. And the teacher fortunately was very um, aware that that was really more important than Michael's making a mission and us just putting it together and handing it in where the parents did all the gluing because it was way too hard for the kids to do that anyway. So this girl's mission, which was very childlike was just lovely. And I, I felt like, wow, that took some guts on their part to let her kind of put out a mission that didn't look perfect. Like all the rest of us wanted it to look right. So it was that kind of a thing. Yeah. So letting your kid be a kid, and make mistakes. That's how they do it, right? It's really hard to do. It takes us as parents to breathe and to listen and to like, okay, um, this is an area where I tend to over parent. I tend to like push uh, them to be perfect. And is that really necessary? And is there a way I can back off of that just a little bit? and let them try more like an example could be, they're going to do the laundry. They're not going to do the laundry right. Right. You want them to learn how to do laundry. I don't know what grade you want to do that. Mine was around fifth grade. Could be even younger. Who knows? I mean, laundry's not hard, but they're going to throw it all that they're, they're going to put in this, you know, and you're going to train them, but they're still not going to do it right. And then it's going to be all wrinkled and eh, eh, eh. as a parent, you're just getting all angst up about it and the kids like happy they're doing laundry they don't care and they really don't care what they look like either half the time i mean so so, but that whole idea can i let go of that and let my kid look a little rumpled and wear clothes that are a little funky looking and maybe not even hugely clean every every single time so that they learn how to do laundry right slowly takes time to learn how to do laundry when you're fifth, fourth grade, third grade, whatever. So um, that kind of idea, making a plan to say on this particular issue, I'm going to try to let go and see what happens, see if this kid is and maybe the kids really not up for it, because some of our foster kids, as we've said earlier, are a little young for their physical age, right? So maybe that's a little too much for them, or it's overwhelming or whatever. And then you know, okay, then you gotta take it all back. But but if they can, then Give it a shot and try to back out. As a parent, try to step back and see what happens. And if they don't, if they do fail, then to talk about failure. What does that mean? How do I? How does that? How are you, you going to survive? You're all going to survive.
0: Great, thank you. And um, we just have a couple more questions. How can um, we, as parents, manage anger and set aside our conversations?
1: Anger is a huge issue. I mean, it's a huge topic. We do a whole hour talking about anger, but, um, managing anger is the idea that most every issue, if you're mad as a parent, you're not going to really solve anything. The higher, the more angry you get, the more you lose your ability to think straight. You get stupider, the more angry you are, right? So if you're really ticked off, I mean, that's why when parents are really mad, they say, because I said so, because they really can't think of any real reason why. They're, they've are they just lost their mind. They have no idea what they're going to really tell the kid. Because um, I'm the parent, that's why you're going to do it, right? <laughs> like, okay, that doesn't make any sense. But <laughs> I used to say when I was really mad at my kids, I used to say, When I get my right mind back, I'm going to have some consequences for you kids. (laughs) Because right now I can't think of any consequences. Because my brain is shut off because I'm so mad. So right now I'm going to take a break and get out of here. Take a break from when you're that riled up for at least an hour. If nobody's bleeding and the house isn't on fire, take a break for an hour and say, we will come back and talk about this at thus and such time. And then we will have more of a decent conversation because I will have my brain back. It takes an hour for all that chemistry that's floating around. When you're angry, that's got you really riled up. It takes an hour for all that chemistry. It's really physiology to just subside and kind of ooze out of you somehow. I don't know how that works. I'm got a lot of but that But, you know, it dissipates. It's a good word. It dissipates so that you're then like, okay, now I'm back to my normal self. And now we have a problem we have to solve. And we have to solve it by using our creativity and our problem-solving skills and as a parent you have to be calm to be able to do that right so and as does the kid so if it's the kid that's riled up you're not going to engage in a conversation with that kid when they're riled up they're not going to problem-solve as we said earlier when they're physical physically or emotionally riled up because they can't think straight if you all you're gonna do is just push that trigger that you know total blowout button if you try to engage at that point. And most of, most parents can feel that, right? They can feel like if I, I start to engage at this point, <laughs> and then you see the look in your kid's eyes, that that nonverbal communication, like, oh, I better shut up and leave this alone for a while, because <laughs> this is not gonna go well. But sometimes we don't notice, or sometimes we're just so determined to fix this thing right now, that we really wanna have this conversation right now. Like, ah, no, that's not a good idea. Need to take an hour at least, let the kid come down. You can say, We need to talk about this, and we can take a break and we'll come back to it. Right? So that they know that you're serious and that you're not going to let it go, whatever it is. But right now, they're crying because, you know, their friend Janie won't talk to them. And that's why they broke this or that or the other thing. You know, I mean, whatever it is, the emotional piece has to be down before we can really have a problem solving session with the kid. Or with our partner, with anybody. I mean, it works for couples, too. I mean, it's a very good tool for talking to your partner about things that you're upset about. Great. Bring the emotions down, yeah.
0: Thank you. Well, Anne, what else would you like to share with our parents and caregivers before we close this conversation about communicating better with the ones we love?
1: Well, I mean, mostly what I'd like to share is that how... You know, how much admiration I have for the work you're doing, because it's really, it's such a gift that any of us gives to the world, really, to the society, to the world. When when we help a kid who is really struggling, who came from a really struggling background, and we help them to, to walk forward in a way that's healthier, um, you know, there's times when I think... Uh, uh, you know, that, that, that every one person, you know, we just had an election and we're counting every vote, like every person creates the whole, right? And so if we have one kid who comes into that hole with a little healthier space, it's like, that's a, that's a huge gift to, to, uh, to all of us as a society, as a whole you know, group. So, that's the one thing I would say is to and to hang in there. I feel like I was. I remember telling my my older son. So I have an older son who's a good eight years older than my adopted daughter. I remember telling him I feel like I'm just holding her, like because she by then was like junior high or something, like holding her in these in these arms, like a, a hug, like hanging on to her because I knew she if she had her brother she would just be boom gone, you know, and I would just be like just stay inside the container with me just keep hanging in there hang in there because if i let it go and let her go she was not going to be the same healthy person but boy that was hard to hang on to and like I, you know it's like when she turned 18 i was like okay i think i can let go now <laughs> because you're actually technically an adult but it was more than that too. i mean and because i had waited that long She's now 23, 24. She still comes back to say, so what do I do about this? You know, that, you know, ultimately the goal I think for every parent, I mean, I know what we want anyway, is that we want our kids to be in a good relationship when we're adults. We want them to be good, healthy adults in the world, but we also want them to be able to come back and have Thanksgiving dinner after COVID. You know, sit at the table, enjoy each other and have conversations and ask for help and you could ask help from them, believe it or not, eventually that <laughs> is going to be necessary that you're going to need them to help you with something
0: and that they would be there and they would, they would
1: and value that and value you and you, them, all that stuff. So, you know, that's, that I have to keep looking at, like, that's the forest for the trees thing, right? That's the, <laughs> that's the long-term goal. It's a long ways out there for a lot of people. But the, just to be able to hang on to that work, very long-term work, right? It's like somehow you apply for a job that you don't get to leave, and it's you don't get to, you know, you, I suppose you could quit, but most people don't quit, and you end up, you know, in a job that you're in for years
0: and years, right. and Yeah. And a whole nother topic then okay. is, is the respite and the self-care that you do so that you stay in it, right? Absolutely. So that you can hold that. So stay sane and take care of, your, taking care of yourself. Container.
1: Taking care of your partner, making sure that you can all keep that even keel, right?
0: Yes, yes. Well, Anne, this has been a great conversation about communication. Thank you so much for your time and your insights. It's amazing to get to not only hear from a therapist um, who's worked with this population, but also in your home, you've parented and you've walked the journey of being a foster and an adoptive parent. Um, I know I have some takeaways from this conversation for my own parenting, and I'm sure that our listeners do as well. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you. It's been so great.
0: Thank you for listening to the help one child podcast. We hope that you found helpful insights and practical parenting tips from your time with us. See you next time.